So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother, and he clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus answered them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is the word of the, this is the gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning again to everyone. I am so excited we read all of Genesis 2. Thank you, Jonathan. I know it's a much longer passage. Normally we don't, we don't read so many verses all at the same time, but this is one whole complete picture that is absolutely beautiful to dive into. There's something about the way that um, Chris even introduced this series in the fact that we started with Advent And then we moved into the Christmas time, and now we're in Epiphany. And as we looked at how important these past times of Advent and Christmas were, now we're kind of going into the backstory. Why are we where we are? Why is the birth of the Messiah so important? What are the things that have gotten us to where we are? And so we plunge deep into the very beginning, the opening parts of Scripture, that help us understand the dream that we should have for how good it could be. What is the purpose for why we are here? So I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person who goes through an existential crisis pretty much every two months or so, three if I'm really lucky. Um, But not everyone does, but I'm not unique in this. Humans have been doing this for a long time, plunging after and trying to figure out Why are humans created? Why are we here? What is our connection to land? What is our relationship to all the other people who are here? Why do we have cities? Why do we do the things we do? What is our connection to the divine? All of these really big questions are answered for us in the very beginnings of the book of Genesis. 
Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are the big stories that are meant to answer the big questions that humans have always had. So last week we looked at Genesis 1. We saw God as the ultimate artist and he builds places and then he populates these places with the things that will flourish in that place. When we move to Genesis 2, we step out of the big cosmic picture and we anchor our feet into this place, into where we are now, on the ground. So there's a lot about Genesis 2 that is earthy, like super like, tangible and a little bit dirty, where the Adama, the earth, is very present in this chapter. Now there's something about uh, Genesis 2, well not something, there's a lot of things about Genesis 2 that I absolutely love that we could get into. Uh, we could talk about is Genesis 2 actually trying to get at gender roles or not? Is the rib actually a rib or is it the whole half of the human? What is our relationship to the land? All of these things we're not actually gonna get into today, but I would recommend John Walton's talk that he did for us um, during our Art of Hard Conversation series. He addressed a lot of those issues of Genesis 2. I'm going to talk about created for presence. The idea of being created for presence is actually assuming a place. And the place is what is uh, the writer of Genesis 2 spends a lot of time describing place. And so if we look at the place that is in Genesis 2, it'll tell us the function of the place and the type of presence that is there. Now, this is something that is actually, if we were in the ancient world, there's a pattern that we would recognize just like that like super intuitive in everyone's world and they would have understood. For us, not so much. We need a little bit of help. So we're gonna spend some time kind of looking at the design of the place. But I would guess that you actually understand that the design of a building, the design of a place tells you the function of that place. So let me give you an example from our modern world. And I know we don't do so much like talk back from the audience, but I'm gonna describe a place and I would love for you to tell me what kind of place this is. And in the first service, it was a kid who got it right. So let's just see, the adults were kind of quiet. Okay, so these buildings are almost always kind of mid-sized to small buildings. Parking lot typically on all or on three sides of the building. When you pull in, you always pull in on the right hand side, always. And you can choose to stay in your car or get out of your car. If you get, if you stay in your car, you pull around to the back of the building where you speak to someone through a speaker, and then you pull the rest of the way around and there's an exchange of goods. You could, okay, hold on, to, I know you know, hold on one second. Just let's, let's see if this still plays out. When, if you choose to go into the building, there's kind of a public place where everyone gathers. You're always divided from the employees by a counter and you never see what's going on in the back. Okay, what is it? 
It's a drive-through, fast food, right? There's something about, oh, we know what the design of this place is. And even the function of the building, it, you're being told how long to even stay. Because when you go in and there's hard seats and tables, um, most of the time they're anchored to the floor. You can't move them around and they're a little bit sticky. You, you kind of go, I, I don't think I'm supposed to stay here very often. I'm supposed to eat and leave. As opposed to maybe a place where you go in and there's armchairs and a fireplace. Those places tell you, come in, sit, maybe have a conversation, and stay for a bit. Okay, so we know, we've experienced how these places tell us what the function is. And it is the exact same thing in Genesis chapter 2, if we have the eyes to see. So let's go through this together. So get your bulletin out and take a look at these verses. We're looking first at the design of the place. And if we start in verses 5 and 6, we see that there is a land, seems quite large, and it's uncultivated, which means it's wild. Now, this is a little bit of like a head nod to chaos, not quite the chaos that we see of the, toho, the tohu vabohu that Chris talked about last week in Genesis 1. It's not quite that, but it is uncultivated land. Okay, now if we drop down to verses 8 and 9, what we see in verses 8 and 9 is that there is Eden, and Eden seems to be a smaller portion of the wild, uncultivated place. And then there's a garden inside of Eden on the eastern side of Eden. There's so many details here that you feel like you could actually draw this, which is a really fun exercise to do. Uh, they, these verses become so familiar to us that we just kind of go, oh, okay. But if you sit down and actually draw and sketch out the place, you start to recognize all of these really interesting details. Okay, so we just learned in the design, we have a large space. And inside that space, there is Eden, and inside that place is a garden. Now, something interesting about gardens, anytime you mention gardens, in the ancient Near East, that is always the king's prerogative. People, normal people, don't just have gardens. You're cultivating the land for food. But gardens always belonged to the temple or to the palace or temple and palace often sharing the same territory. So by mentioning the garden, the writer is telling you we're thinking about royalty in the garden, okay? So big space to small space, garden in the middle. Oh, and I almost forgot. Those of you who have kids sitting by you, in the kids bulletin, they have a great picture of an actual depiction of a garden. So borrow a kid. If, if you're on this side, you don't, this side doesn't tend to have kids. You could borrow a kid and take a look because this is an actual depiction of an actual garden in Assyria where the king and the queen are in the garden together. And you can look at all the different types of vegetation that is there and pick out ones that look familiar to you. Okay, so that's the design. Let's look at how this place is decorated. 
So if we look at verses 10 through 14, we see that there's a singular river that starts in Eden. It goes into the garden and splits into four and goes out to water the earth. Interesting. There's costly materials, precious goods, rubies, gems of all sorts. And then later on, we're going to find out that there are animals that are in this place. Who else is here? Like, who is present in this place? Well, God is there initially. It is all God as the ultimate creator, picking up earth, forming a human, breathing into the nostrils and creating life. Later, God is going to take that human and pull the human into two and then put the two of them in the garden. A detail that the writer actually mentions twice that the humans are put in the garden. Okay, so in our design of place, where is the garden? The garden is that smaller, more intimate place that is in Eden, that is in the rest of the land. And the remarkable thing is that in the garden, that the pair of humans that are there in the presence of God, depicting royalty because they're in this place, there is no shame there. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing to me, that the ultimate design is for the humans to be together and no shame in the way that they are together and no shame as they sit in the presence of God. Okay, so if we put all of this together, right? So we have a design, large space with Eden, with a garden. Um, we have expensive materials. We have animals or depictions of animals, say. So have we started thinking, oh, this pattern, I now recognize this pattern. Is there a pattern that jumps to mind? I know adults have a hard time volunteering because we just don't do this. Maybe the tabernacle in a three-part design, later on the temple. And so when we read this, the ancient eye, the ancient ear, would have heard right away that the story we're being told in Genesis 2 is that humans were created to be in the presence of God as royalty in what is the equivalent of the holy of holies of the cosmos in which God dwells. And that is a really essential point to have to build our foundation on, because ultimately, when we read further into the story, the humans are extracted from that garden. But we don't start with the extraction, we start with the fact that you were created to be in this kind of presence, which is royal and also sacred. This garden, temple, palace theme goes all through scripture. It is rich in scripture. And if you learn to see it, you'll get all kinds of light bulbs and fireworks going off all the time. And if you want a really fun homework assignment for those of you who are super bold to plunge into portions of the Bible we ignore, read the Song of Songs with the garden, temple, palace. Intimacy 
and no shame. Theme, it'll be beautiful. So in this series that we're doing, where we're talking about the persistent presence of God, we start first with the purpose of the presence. This is what we were meant for. This is what we were designed for. There is going to be a separation, but this is why then we get patterns of the tabernacle to be moving with the people, to be a constant reminder that although the world that they're experiencing is a little off balance, this is what they were designed for. This was the purpose of the presence of God with them. The temple in Jerusalem is going to do the same thing. And ultimately, when we get to the Gospels, we see that Jesus starts to assume all of these temple images onto himself, which means even for us, as we are coming together and coming to the Lord's table, there's a coming into that sacred presence again. There's a coming into that tabernacle, temple, holy of holies, with God. I almost wish that today we actually were coming down the aisles to receive the bread and wine because I would love to see your royal strut, right? As you came forward and a strut to the point of there is no shame in coming to the table. And the coming to the table is a remembering that we together are being united, but that we together and as individuals are meant for something beautiful, this royal and sacred presence of God. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, you are an amazing artist who builds beautiful and creative places. And when you create you create the best of the best and invite us into those kinds of spaces. More often than not, we separate ourselves from your presence. And I just pray that we learn to hear your beckoning call back into the Holy of Holies where we stand without shame in front of your presence, addicted to just gazing upon your beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand, if you are able, and let's confess our faith 